Hey everybody, glad to see you've all survived Friday the 13th of April. We made it to the weekend and welcome one and all to Dead to Rights, episode 16, The Seagull Poet of Butter Bay, featuring a fantastic interview with author and editor John Strother. Over the past few weeks, we've been honored to bring you writers from a vast array of genres, from true crime to journalism to fantasy to romance. Such greats as Nate Henley and Miriam Colbris and Tony and John Rakestraw, to name only a few. The next few weeks will be equally interesting. On April 22nd, we bring you Canada's funniest crime writer, hands down, our own Melody Campbell. Then, on April 29th, we'll feature organized crime expert Stephen Matelski, followed on May 6th by one of the most poignant literary saga writers I know, Junying Kirk, who writes and lives in the UK about a sweeping journey from China to the West. On May 13th, we spring back to traditional mysteries with Judy Penn's Shalak, and on May 20th, we'll chat with espionage thriller writer Russell Parkway. Then we'll close May on the 27th with renowned interviewer Cyrus Webb, host of Conversations about all things related to excellence. We're proud to bring you this exceptional lineup, and it goes without saying our readers on the run will also be treated weekly to short stories, even as our authors offer valuable tips for newbie writers. So settle in, folks, and adjust those earbuds. Whether you're out for your daily walk, prepping the spring garden, or just revving up your engine for your commute, it's time now for a story. Today I hope to remind our writers out there about the beauty of words and their raw power. As you hear this story, I hope you'll be able to spot the poetry in the prose and the pacing the rhythm and the syntax of life. This story was featured in the Best of Friday Flash, which was compiled and edited by John Strother. Let it rot. And now we're at our Readers on the Run section for today, and I'm going to bring you a story by Alec Carrick titled The Seagull Poet of Butter Bay. In a vision, he'd once seen another seagull in a top hat dancing at the Trocadero. It was the most elegant thing ever. He became entranced by imagery and longed to give expression to his own special voice. There was no doubt he was a poet at heart. That's what his girlfriend Sandy Barr told him. Never mind, he knew the truth anyway. He was always functioning with his head in the stratosphere. There was something about it that felt so right. He knew it was his true calling. He was a vagabond, a troubadour, a traveling jester, riding the winds and sometimes performing for his meals. But he had higher aspirations. He wanted to put his experiences in words. His world was something that needed and cried out for sharing. He'd breathed in the autumn's tangy smell from wood-burning stoves, felt the sharpness in the air as winter's cold grip crept in. He'd seen the brightness bloom as spring's healing bonnet led to summer's torpor and absorbed the splintery hues of water, 
in all its seasons. He knew writing poetry was no path to riches. That was okay with him. Few seagulls achieved worldly success. Jonathan Livingston had been a rare exception. For a while, Johnny L. had been able to enjoy a high life based on royalties. Then the fortune ran out, and existence depended on scraps the same as for everyone else. Still, he was bothered by some misconceptions about his brethren. The bad thing humans said about seagulls, that they were all scavengers, was a licorice-hearted lie. Humans thought they were so smart. What did they know? Did they think all his swooping and swirling in flight was just for fun? No, it was skywriting in 3D. The aerial scripture was satisfying in its own way, but now he wanted to find a larger audience. How to reach out to people? Damnable kids with their opposable thumbs, text messaging each other willy-nilly. It was like trying to decipher the Da Vinci Code, figuring out what they were saying. Give him old-fashioned language, something he could get his beak around. There was little encouragement for artistic expression in his crepuscular world. Cawing crows and their cousin ravens were vicious critics. What gave them the right? The last time one of them squawked something interesting was Nevermore at Edgar Allan Poe's garden party. If he was going to take writing seriously, maybe he should start composing movie reviews. That's where some of the best phrases and thematic stitchings were to be found. He knew the subject matter. It wasn't as if he hadn't circled around and dropped in on enough drive-in theaters in his day. There were words he had always wanted to use. He knew from experience the beating and sparkling sea could be variously vermilion, cerulean, and umbras. The amniotic air was often languorous or limpid. His middle name was loquacious. Ah, poetry, the muted music of the soul, unless one went on a speaking tour. What wouldn't he give to project his words before a receptive audience in a plummy English actor's voice? But all these plans and speculations were tiring him out. He'd stand one-legged on this rock for a while and let the day's last embrace slip away. In the twilight, he'd go for a final swim. If the setting sun angled just right, he'd ride along on a seeming sea of butter. A few popcorn clouds would float above, ready for dipping. He'd wait for the first stars to sprinkle down from heaven's salt shaker before heading inland to some farmer's field. Weed-quilted dreams would then bring new imaginings. It was a mighty fine life. The End And that has been The Seagull Poet of Butter Bay by Alec Carrick. I hope you've enjoyed that poetic reading. Thank you. And now I'd like to give a big dead-to-rights welcome to John Strother. Let it Good morning, John. It's Donna Carrick at Dead to Rights. How are you? I'm doing 
doing fine. How about yourself? I'm doing great, and welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're very welcome. Um, I wanted to talk to you today because I know that you have coordinated a number of anthologies in the past, and anthologies are something that are fascinating for most writers. Um, you're, you yourself are a writer. You call yourself a writer of fact, fiction, poetry, fantasy, sci-fi, mystery, and horror genres. And um, with such a, a broad set of literary interests, I think it was only natural that you founded the Twitter hashtag Friday Flash. Um, for authors of short stories. I wanted to know, when did you first start hosting that online anthology, and what story genres did you include? I used to be a moderator at Editor Unleashed, and uh, I participated in a lot of writers' forums besides that. And uh, got to know a lot of writers online, and Twitter was becoming quite the thing. And it just occurred to me that wouldn't it be great to like help each other out start a group and get a hashtag on Twitter and then we can post our stories on our blogs and and post the link on on Twitter with a hashtag and uh, and so I thought of I, I looked at a couple of hashtags and they were already being used and then Friday flash seemed to work yes um, and, and so we started doing that in uh, May of 2009, late May of 2009, and at first, we just all did it independently, and then I would go through and do various online searches for the Friday Flash hashtag and stuff like that, and manually collect those links, and I'd put out, you know, I'd type up a, a, Friday, a Friday Flash report, and it was quite burdensome. Yes, yes. <laughs> particularly as more and more people started joining in. I remember the Friday Flash report that you used to do. Yeah, and so uh, somewhere along the line, uh, Tim Van Zant uh, offered to help by creating the uh, Friday Flash collector, and that just people would just use an online form and they'd enter all their own data, and then his little software would chug out the list. And then I just had to write a little introductory paragraph, and that really helped a lot. Yes. <laughs> so that's pretty much how it got started. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I can honestly uh, say that you were one of the first people that uh, Alec Carrick and I met on Twitter, and it was because of your Friday Flash. It, it just took off like a great guns, and um, it was really popular for writers uh, for quite a long time. I don't know if you're still going with it, or if uh, the two anthologies that you did kind of wrapped it up, but um, tell me, is it something that you're still considering going forward with? Well, my wife found a lump uh, in 2012, and it turned out to be breast cancer. Um, my volunteers on, on, on the Friday Flash website, Tim, Tim developed a, Tim and my friend Susan Chambliss developed a website for Friday Flash, moving it from my blog to the Friday Flash blog. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he and, and Angie, uh, Cabanzalo and, and, uh, Estella Azul and, uh, my friend Susan pretty much took, took up at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You and, had enough on your plate at that time, I know. Well, and uh, as time went on, you know, I realized that I was going to burn them out. 
Yes. And and uh, you know volunteers can only do so much. <laughs> yes. And and so I asked them um, if they wanted to, to drop out, and you know eventually they all said yes. Yes. <laughs> and, yes. And so the Friday Flash uh, website was was shut down. We moved to fa- we moved to Facebook and to Google Plus, and. It sort of limps along there. Um, mm-hmm. I've gotten less and less involved over time, I, uh, and so really, you know, the Facebook page is really. I know it really became now. too much for one person, didn't it? It got so big so fast that I think it really was too much, and especially with the personal situation that you were facing at the time. Um, I, I think that the thing just grew out of itself. Um, I remember at the time that everybody was tweeting Friday Flash. Almost every darn author that we knew was involved in it. So it was just it was a it was too successful for its own britches. I think in a way, wasn't it? <laughs> if I if I had unlimited resources, then I could have hired you know staff and and probably kept it running. But you know. Yeah. Well, it was a brilliant vision. But I mean, you were the one with the vision, and so. For volunteers, I, I hear what you're saying. It's not really their vision, so there's a limit to how much they can contribute to it, you know? Oh, yeah, and they, they work really hard, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it can only go on for so long before you burn them out. That's right. And, and I didn't want to do that. We never got to that point. You know, but, yeah, never, and along the way, you had, uh, you had a great achievement in morphing it into two-volume print editions, and... Um, that's a tremendous achievement for you and for all the authors that were involved. Um, it kind of it puts it into posterity rather than just a Twitter hashtag. Um, now, I know from my own experience how much work is involved in coordinating an anthology, and um, it's kind of like herding cats, um, bringing a collection of authors all with different backgrounds and different desires to meet your timelines and processes. Um, did you have any help in coordinating that? Who did the editing and who handled the administrative aspects, like gathering the contracts? Well, um, the the first volume uh, was just sort of an idea I had after about a year of realizing that we had some really terrific stories. And so I just posted it on the blog saying, you know, what do y'all think about putting together an anthology? And it got a lot of enthusiastic response. So then I had to figure out how to, how to do that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a pretty firm believer in crowdsourcing, mm-hmm. and so I just put out a call for volunteers to judge the stories. We ended up with 26 uh, judges, mm-hmm. mostly from the community itself, mm-hmm. and so to prevent, you know, bias, we, we had people uh, submit uh, three stories each. If they wanted to participate, they could submit up to three stories. And then the judges, and those were submissions were blind, and so the judges didn't know who wrote them. Although, because they were in the community, if they recognized the story, they'd obviously know. So yes. that wasn't perfect. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I tried. Still, it's, it's a pretty good process. It's a pretty, and a very difficult process to have blind judging. Uh, well, and, and what really helped was doing the three, you can enter up to three stories. Because... Mm-hmm. People are often not very good judges of their own writing. Yes. <laughs> and so they might submit one story that they think is absolutely their best and not submit a couple of others 
And actually, you know, one of those others would have really been much better. Mm -hmm. and, and so the judges could look at three different stories, and they knew they were from the same author, but they didn't know what author necessarily. And then they could read those three stories and then rank them one, two, three. Mm -hmm. And then it was just mathematics as to which one, you know, from the various judges, which ones got the most points. Mm -hmm. and, and that became the selection for all the people that submitted. And everybody that submitted uh, got passed on to the second level of judging. Mm -hmm. And then the second level of judging, and so everybody that submitted got a story up to the second level of judging. And That's then for great. the second level of judging, I figured that really did need to be blind. Mm -hmm. And so I, I recruited some friends that I knew, uh, mostly from my book club, <laughs> and, uh, and they judged the uh, second level. Of How to handle resources there, John. That's terrific. <laughs> and then, uh, and then uh, you know, they were still, you know, that, that just meant the best story from each of those people mm -hmm. got selected. Mm -hmm. And then that was more stories than the anthology was going to include, and so I had to make the, the final cut. And so you acted as I, final editor-in-chief. I was and, the final yeah. editor, and I don't like that. No, no, I, I know. I, I really hated having to contact people and tell them they didn't make the cut. I know. We want everybody, we want everybody to do well, don't we? I mean, this is the, this, it, it speaks to our love of books and our love of this industry, our love of the authors, it's just horrible when you have to tell somebody no. I mean, it's not what we get into it for, but you have to do it. Yeah, you do. And, and you know, to this day, it, nothing thrills me more than seeing somebody from the Friday Flash community getting published. Yes. <laughs> it, it just, it really, you know, lights up my heart. I know. And I so know. then there was the editing, and uh, Friday Flash was always an international affair. And I wanted to maintain that international flavor. Mm -hmm. And so I recruited, again, from the community, um, mostly, um, 14 regional editors. Okay. And uh, not 14 regions, but 14 editors for various regions. So mm -hmm. that if people wrote in, in British English or in American English or Canadian English or Australian English, mm -hmm. they were being edited by somebody from Great Britain or somebody from Australia and so on. Wow. And, and that way... The things that I wouldn't know would be quirky for a given reader of that dialect mm -hmm. would would sound natural. <laughs> yes, yes, and that's a big, hairy deal. I mean, I, I know I have a tendency to slip everything over to U.S. English in the final edit, um, but while I'm reading, it helps to know that all of these regions do use a, a different language, and they have varying colloquialisms, too, that may not mean anything right. to one reader, but means a lot to the people in the region they're from. Well, I know there was one story from, from Great Britain where they, they mentioned something, and it's like, what in the heck are they talking about? But my regional editor knew exactly what it was. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that broadens your knowledge, too, as editor, I yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we published it all by Yes, yes. So you got it into ebook format. You also got it into print format, and they are yeah. they are terrific books, both volumes. I really do recommend them to our readers. If you love short short stories, because that's what these are, uh, define flash fiction for us, John, before we go any further. Well, in Friday Flash, it was basically anything that was uh, a thousand words or less that actually told a story. Yes, you know, beginning, middle, and end. It does have to be um, a complete story, folks. Yeah. 
And we we took basically any genre. I discouraged uh, erotica because we had minors you know, yes. that were contributors just as well as adults. Um, and there were stories that I did not put into the Friday Flash Report because they were too graphic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that only happened like a couple times. And we even took uh, poetry. You know, if, if the poem actually told a story, mm-hmm. that would be fine. Wow. Um, and that only happened a handful of times, too. Yeah, that's terrific, um, though. I, I, I love what you did with that. That's why I wanted to talk to you, and that's why I made sure to add you to the early list for the first quarter of, of interviews for Dead to Rights, because you brought such a joy into the industry when you were working on this, and I think it's been a lasting joy. I mean, people all over refer to flash fiction now that maybe never heard of it before you came on the scene, so... And I hear it all the time, and I've always got people submitting to me saying, this is a flash piece, or if it's an anthology, they'll ask, can I, can I submit two pieces? Well, you can submit them, certainly, you know. Um, but uh, as well as being a writer in multiple genres, you're also a voracious reader. I know this because I follow you avidly on Facebook, so I'm always watching what you're reading. And um, one of the things I did notice is that we both loved Ursula K. Le Guin, um, who is the author for our readers of The Dispossessed, The Left Hand of Darkness, and a number of other really fantastic titles. Um, Ursula actually passed away recently, so if you are not familiar with her work, listeners, please go out and research her. I also noticed, John, that um, you recently read The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert Heinlein. Say the name. Heinlein, thank you. Another literary giant. And um, my question for you is twofold about your reading. What is your very favorite desert island go-to genre, the one that you would reach for above all others? And B, who is your favorite and perhaps most influential writer as it regards your own work? Well, um, if I had to... That's really... Those are both very tough questions, actually. Yes. If I had to pick one genre that I would only have available to me like on a desert island. Maybe mystery. I'm not sure. Um, But perhaps mystery. But if I could only pick one book to have with me, it would be The Lord of the Rings. Ah! (laughs) The Um, whole thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, As far as uh, my most influential or favorite authors, that really varies by genre. And and even then, it would be hard to choose just one. Can you um, name a few? Let's throw a few mystery, out. For mystery, uh, probably Conan Doyle and Laurie, you know, for influential, and Laurie King for favorite. Um, she really got me with Folly. I, I read Folly, and I just fell in love with her writing. Um, oh. Fantasy, Tolkien and Le Guin. And for science fiction, uh, Ray Bradbury. I actually had the honor of meeting Ray Bradbury at a science fiction convention in St. Louis, and he turned out to be just as delightful in person as I as I perceived in writing, and that just made me feel good. <laughs> oh, which year? Which year did you meet him? Oh God, I can't remember. It was um, a few years ago, Science Con in St. Louis. It was at Archon. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the Archon. Archon archives to uh, figure out what year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he was very old, and you know, he he was. Uh, it wasn't too many years after that that he died. 
Okay. Sorry to hear that. So that's Ray Bradbury. Have I got that right? Yeah, Ray Brad. Okay, so that's some really great names, listeners. If you haven't read Ursula K. Le Guin, Tolkien, of course, the master, uh, Ray Bradbury, and uh, who else did you mention? Laurie King. Laurie King. Okay, great. There's some terrific names to look up and research. Um, I want to give to listeners, I mean, many of our listeners, I hope and believe, are readers, not just writers. Um, We know that writers love to read. But there may be people listening who just don't know all these authors, too. So I think it's important to to get some of these names out to them, you know? Yeah. As far as one of the most influential authors on, on me in my life, it might be uh, uh, Jean uh, de Brunhoff, the author of the Babar books. <laughs> author of the which books, sorry? Babar, the elephant. Okay, okay, yeah. I read Babar and Father Christmas when I was young. Mm-hmm. And the cutaway of Father Christmas's house and workshop, the side view cutaway yeah. graphic, yeah. just fascinated me. And I started drawing stuff like that myself, and I attribute that to my to the development of my spatial analysis tendencies. And, yeah, and, and probably your creative it. tendencies too. Your your vision. Yeah, I yeah. mean, our and, vision's and, so important. Oddly enough, became a cartographer. <laughs> there so, you go. Me becoming a cartographer, I kind of attribute to Babar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny because who influences us, people may not realize, uh, who influences us as people, not just as writers, is not always the greatest writer on earth, but it's the writer that speaks to us on an important subject to us at a time when we are going through change in our own lives. Yeah, something that gets into you. Yes, yes. It may not be the greatest writer on that subject, but it's the writer that spoke to exactly what we needed to hear when we were going through our biggest changes in our lives. I'll give you an example. It would be Richard Bach. Um, When I was around 19, 20, I was going through major changes in my life. And Jonathan Livingston Siegel and... um, the Blue Feather, both those books just completely spoke to me. I, I've read them since, and they are great works, there's no question. I'm not sure I would have latched on to them in my later years the way I did in my younger years, and they still influence me. They influence the way I think and the way I look at life. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I also think it's important for for writers to read a lot and, and uh, toward that end. Reading and rereading classics yes. from many genres, and uh, you know everything from Gilgamesh to Heinlein. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just think a writer needs a sound grounding in the classics just to draw upon. I do too. So. I do too. And I, I just my hair curls at the follicles when I hear people say they don't have time for the classics. Or for the poets. I mean, pick one. It doesn't have to be poetry that you read, but these things will influence your cadence. They'll influence the way you look at the world and the way you express what you see. Yeah. That said, I think some classics probably age better than others. Yeah, (laughs) I think that's true. And I think some of us as readers have more tolerance for some classics than, than we do for others, and that's all fair. But read some of it, please. Ground yourself. Yeah. 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 For the first time, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm surprising myself in that I find that I like it. 
uh-huh. And if you saw the, the recent movie before you read the book, I think that would affect how you read it, too. I, I think uh, really that um, Leonardo DiCaprio was brilliant in it. I'm not going to give any critiquing there. He was brilliant. But I loved that novel from a very young age. I really loved it. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised I liked it. I expected to not like it. <laughs> <laughs> why, why did you think that, John? Because it's funny. What, what... I, I don't know. Just the, the era. The, just the, I knew it was about a rich guy. And yes. Uh, just uh, just my own pre- taking my own prejudices yes. into it. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I find it's quite, quite compelling. It really is, and it holds up. That's the funny thing about it. It really holds up to scrutiny under under current times, you know? Like I said, some classics age better than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, books and writing might be everything to us, but it's not everything to the world or to everything that we need in our lives. We have to keep a balance, and uh, because I watch you so much on Facebook, <laughs> I'm not stalking you, I promise, John. <laughs> I just kind of, I watch you among the people I watch. I think it's fascinating what you get up to, and I know that one of the things you're really striving for is a good physical balance in your life, walking and gardening and being outdoors. Um, is this something that you started recently, or is it something that you've always been aware of? Well, I've been heavy all my life, and I used to wear the husky size when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and uh, I got quite obese. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and so... Um, I've gone. I've I've been through um, fits and starts on on trying to get things under control. You know, all my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was quite successful back in the late nineties, getting down. Lost about one hundred and fifty pounds or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gained back about sixty of that eventually. And and now I'm just um, I'm trying again very hard to. It's important, though, isn't it? And it's important to keep an awareness of it because, uh, as I say, all the things I love are sedentary. I mean, I love writing. I love editing. I love publishing, formatting. I love doing these interviews. I love knitting. I love uh, crocheting. I love drawing. Everything I love is sedentary. And so I have to retrain my mind. I have to remind myself I love to walk. I love the outdoors. I love the birds singing, you know. I, I really have to remind myself of that, and it's an it's an active game because, like many writers, yes, I struggle with weight. It's it's an ongoing thing. So something for people to be aware of. Um, I love to read, and reading is very sedentary, unless of course you get Audible and you walk while you listen. You know. I use audiobooks a lot. Yeah. So do I. Um, the um, my doctor's constantly suggesting that I increase my exercise and she knows I have an exercise bike and and I just can't hardly bring myself to use it. It's just so, so mind-numbing. Yes. Um, so, and, and usually my exercise goes up when the weather's nice and it goes down in the wintertime. And, That's and pretty so, normal. Yeah. And, and so I thought, well, I, I really hate the exercise bike, but maybe I should just start walking, you know, like doing mall walking or something yes. like that. And then... We have this this big new hardware store near me, and it's got two stories. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go walk over there. And so I bought myself a pedometer, and you know, it doesn't matter if it's four below zero. Yeah, <laughs> I exactly. I, exactly. I can go over there and start walking, and and I discovered they have like 
4.4 miles of aisles. <laughs> yes, because you're in a northern city like me. I mean, I'm in Toronto, and uh, we got snow, man, and we got ice, and it's slippery. And I love to walk, and I try to walk every day. But when it's really slushy and slippery like this, I find it hard because I'm really worried about falling and then not being able to walk at all, you know? Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah my brother was a tremendous bike rider. And uh, a couple of his friends, you know, had really severe accidents, and I think one of them was killed. Yeah. And uh, and uh, he just decided, you know, bike riding for a seventy-year-old is just too dangerous. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you fall over and break your hip. That's right. At the beginning of the end. That's right. Exactly. So, but you so do I'm have to. You have to keep that healthy balance, though. I mean. Anybody listening, I really encourage you, keep that healthy balance. If you're listening to this podcast, put your earbuds in and go for a walk while you listen. I'll be there with you, cheering you on, you know. <laughs> I want to see people healthy. A, yeah, I'm thinking about getting a trike. Um, they're not as dangerous as far as to <laughs> Are you allowed to ride them on the sidewalk? And she says you got to learn how to steer. <laughs> and uh, so you can you can tip them over, but. Yeah, I love it. I'd love to see you on a tricycle. That would be great. You're going to have to post a picture if you do it. <laughs> yeah, and they're extending the trail near my house. So yeah, yeah. Now, what, and, are you, what, and, are you, what are you currently working on, John? What's uh, going on in your world right now? Really, I sad to say, not a whole lot in the way of writing. Um, when Cindy died, I really sort of lost my spark. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's finally starting to come back. Um, so, if I'm working on anything in the, in the way of writing, it's it's mostly mystery or dystopian science fiction. Okay, okay. Um, I had uh, a series of dystopian science fiction in Friday Flash uh, that I called Life in Hell, spelled H-E-L, and uh, from the... Uh, name of the star system these people were living at, mm -hmm. and, um, and I continue to write new episodes of that every once in a while with the idea that someday I'll, I, I might edit those into a, a novel. Mm -hmm. I, have, I have a novel sort of outlined in my head, mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I have a couple of mysteries and detective novels and novellas that I go back to and, and hope to publish someday. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Well, if you pull these, if you pull these stories together into a novel format, um, let me know because I would love to get you back on Dead to Rights to uh, to talk about it. I I know that there was, and I I don't want to presume, but I know that there was a spot where things changed significantly for you, and because we've been friends online for a long time, I was aware of when that happened, and. Uh, it was another of the reasons I wanted to get you on because I kind of, my sense is that you're starting to come back into your creative self again. And, um, you know, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I think maybe the, the walking helps, you know. There's nothing like a long bike ride or a long walk. That, yeah, yeah, that I agree. Create, spark the, uh, the muse. I know. So, and you learned so much through your whole Friday Flash process. Um, what, do you have any tip, uh, do you have a, tip or two for our uh, new writers that you can you can offer about any part of the industry from what you learned? Well, probably not anything they haven't heard before. Um, if you want to write, write. Uh-huh. That's the big if one, isn't it? If you want to get published, write and 
knowledge. Yes. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. That's right. That really is the crux of it, isn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. And there's there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody's looking for the magic wand. But it really is all about writing enough pages, writing enough words, and then going back and and I think getting uh, uh, getting a um, writing critique group is big, whether it be a group online or a live group that meets somebody that you can share your passion with and they can give you feedback because feedback's so essential to growth. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm, I've tried that a couple of times and they always seem to fall apart. <laughs> I know, they do fall apart, but then you just put another one together. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I do. Now, at your stage of the game, I think you're probably past that, but for new writers, I think it's just critical. I don't think I'm past that. I, I, I think it's really important for people to get feedback. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I don't care what stage you're at. I think that's important. That's true. Um, you know, for the more established, successful writers, they get that feedback from their from their um, agents and their editors. You know? Yes, so that's true. For people that aren't at that stage and don't have that kind of money, you, you have to find it in other places. Yeah. Uh, and it might sound a little odd, given my history of posting fiction online, but uh, I think writers should resist the urge to write and post. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's for two reasons. One, if you post it online, then you probably won't be able to sell it except as a reprint. Yeah. And second, um, writing like wine improves with age. You know, write it, put it away, write another couple of things, then take it back out and polish it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that, like once... Yeah. Submit it. You gotta yeah. submit. Yeah. Now Dorothy McIntosh brought a different outlook to it. She she um emphasized know what you want to do with your writing before you write. And I think that, you know, in speaking to whether you post online or not, that's a big question. If you never intend to seek an agent or a publisher and you're happy sharing your work online, then by all means go for it. But oh, sure. I, yeah. I'm yeah. just I just mean if you want to sell it. Yes, if you want to sell it commercially, then it's probably better to keep it to yourself until it's in a state where you want to present it to publishers and agents. Right, or even self-publish it. I mean, yeah, yeah. You 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 want your work when you self-publish it to come out as new. You know, yes, you know. yes, as as new. Exactly. That's right. Yeah, that's a really good point, John. Thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us on Dead to Rights. Uh, stay with me, because I'm going to chat with you for a second after we're offline. But I really want to okay. thank you for joining our listeners today. Okay, well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. I'd like to thank John Strother for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at deadtorightspod. We'd love to hear from you at CarrickPublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, DonnaCarrick.com. Likewise, you can always find Alec on Twitter at Alex underscore Carrick or at his website, AlexCarrick.com. If you're a published author and would like to join our listeners on the pod, Contact me at carrotpublishing at rogers.com and say, schedule me for an interview. Be sure to join us next week, April 22nd, for episode 17, Dog Trap, featuring Canada's funny lady, author Melody Campbell. 
Our Dead to Rights theme song, Eyes of Gold, as well as all story scoring music, is composed and performed by Ted Carrick. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.